following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Life is full of misfortune. What do I mean by that, boys and girls? Every day things happen in your lives that simply create difficulties for what you want to do. Perhaps you thought you were going to go to a friend's house and play or go to a party and suddenly the party was canceled or you have a cold and you can't go. Or your dad said he'll take you uh, out uh, Saturday afternoon for pizza and ice cream and uh, your dad gets sick and he can't do it. Or you yourself will get sick and cold and you have to go to bed. Those are what we mean by life's misfortunes. And they happen to every one of us, not just children, but adults as well. But much more seriously than the misfortunes of life are what I'm going to call the frowning or dark providences of life. They've not happened to all of you children. They've happened to some already. They've happened to many of you adults already frowning dark providences when you find out that your parents are getting a divorce or that your father has a a terminal cancer or your mother is leaving the family or a little girl like Ellie Rogers, whom many of you know and pray for, is so sick that she has nothing of a, a normal life. We could go on. We know what we're talking about. Many of you have had them already. Dark, frowning providences of God. Now, what is the response then to those things? Now, the misfortunes are one thing, and by God's grace through them, we can learn patience and and grow in that way. But what about the dark, frowning providences of God? How have you responded? How will you respond to the really bad and terrible things that happen in your life? You see, now's the time to prepare yourself for how you will respond. Now's the time to equip yourself to think the mind of Christ in terms of the frowning dark providences of life. And that's a lesson the Holy Spirit is teaching us here from Job chapter 16. As in this second round of speeches now, Job is responding to Eliphaz, who is the chief spokesman, the oldest of Job's friends, who have come alongside to counsel him. But what has their counsel been? It's one chord. Job, you would not be suffering like this unless you were a terrible, gross sinner. God is punishing you. If you will but repent, everything will be well. But boys and girls, remember what the problem was? Could Job repent of sins he's not committed? Was Job a wicked and gross person? No, God said that he was a blameless and upright man, that he feared God, that he turned away from evil. So what's he going to do? Because that's all he is hearing from them. So in Eliphaz's beginning, the second round of speeches, he does two things. He attacks Job personally with no grounds. He doesn't come alongside and say this thing or that thing. He simply attacks him as a wicked and evil person who perverts piety. And then he takes a truth of Scripture about God's judgment against wicked people and perversely applies that to Job, becoming uh, 
meaner and meaner as it goes on, even in this speech. So we come now to Job's second speech. Now, remember, and notice the little connection. This is a series, a dialogue. It is by the Holy Spirit designed in this way, and the dialogue is marked out by the very first line of each section by the little phrase, Then Job answered and said, or then Eliphaz answered and said. And so this introduces Job's second speech, which is Job's response now to Eliphaz. And what I want to show you, and there's lots of ways to look at these speeches, but what I want to show you is the Holy Spirit is teaching us here that the believer in, in the midst of trial and temptation fortifies himself, herself by meditating on uh, the sovereign providence and grace of God. You get that point. The believer, he or she, fortifies himself in the midst of trial and temptation by meditating, thinking, thinking deeply on God's sovereign providence and grace. And I'll open this chapter up under three headings. We're going to look at the rejection of false interpretations of providence, the affirmation of the sovereignty of God in his providence, and the trust in the sovereign grace of God. So we begin then in the first five verses with a rejection of wrong interpretations of providence. Then Job answered, I've heard many such things. Sorry, comforters are you all. Is there no limit to windy words or what plagues you that you answer? I too could speak like you if I were in your place. I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace or help of my lips could lessen your pain. Now, in the first line of verse 2, I have heard many such things. Job is simply reflecting on the singular statement, the one chord guitar that these men are plucking. And that is they're repeating themselves over and over and over again. That's what he, I have heard many such things. See, there's nothing new in what you are saying. This is a, a refrain that we will find, have found in Job. Chapter 13, uh, verse 4, he says, They smear with lies and are worthless physicians. In chapter 21, 34, even that far into the conversation between them, Job is still saying, How then will you vainly comfort me, for your answers remain full of falsehood? They only know one thing. They're locked into this health, wealth, and prosperity theology that is so rampant today in our country, but particularly in impoverished areas of Africa and Latin America, that if you just believe God, he is going to heap riches upon you, particularly if you'll send money into the particular health, wealth, and prosperity preacher, and he then will pray particularly for you. Um, it's evil. And this is how these men were thinking. They, they couldn't get outside the box if there was any other cause for affliction. And Job says, listen, men, you're saying the same thing over and over again. Now, when Job attacks them here, you might think, well, he's doing exactly what he accused, or what I accused of Eliphaz doing last week, of attacking him. Remember, ad hominem, argument against the man? The difference was, Eliphaz didn't come along with facts and say, Job, this is true or this is true because of what you said. But see, Job, as he says that their counsel is, is unprofitable and useless, gives now three things about it. He says, it is dangerous, it is worthless, and it's thoughtless. Job says in verse 3, 
or the end of verse 2, that their counsel is dangerous. Now, you might look at this water, sorry comforters are you all, and wonder how in the world do you get danger out of that. Well, look at your uh, footnote. It's literally comforters of trouble or misery or mischief. The word there translated sorry is the word used in Eliphaz's speech in verse 35. They conceive mischief, pain, and trouble. He says basically that they are sinful counselors, and their counsel is promoting mischief and trouble in the life of Job. Now, what does he mean by that? He says they're joining forces with the devil. They become tempters when they keep banging on him, shouting into his ears, Job, you are a wicked man. You must repent, because they're driving him to a point of despair. He can't repent. What course of action does he have? Well, He's being tempted to deny God. That's exactly what he has in mind here. He's already cautioned. He said, look, I'm not made of iron. I'm not made of rock. And uh, they keep pounding on him. And so it's very dangerous. And we have to be careful uh, in giving counsel to ourselves. Because we can reach conclusions, as I mentioned last week, that are dangerous about our own condition. Satan can use those things to uh, tempt us to despair, tempt us to uh, blaspheme God. Uh, And he does that. Come back to that. But also, uh, you must be careful as you give counsel to others. That your counsel, although well meant, could actually be words that would drive them further away from God. Drive them to a point of despair. So the council was unprofitable because it was dangerous. Now, second, he says it was actually worthless. He uses their words in verse 3. Is there no limit to windy words? And they've accused him of windy words. But um, notice he says, what plagues you that you answer? In other words, why do you keep going back? What is the motivation? What is vexing you to keep dealing with me in this way that is absolutely unhelpful? I've told you it's unhelpful. Why do you keep pounding on me? Which brings us to the thoughtlessness of it, the climax of what he's saying here in verses 4 and 5. I too could speak like you if I were in your place. And literally it is uh, your soul were in place of my soul. If I were in your place... I could compose words against you, shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips could lessen your pain. He says, let's turn it around. Let's just imagine for the sake of discussion that you are in my situation, and I am in your situation. I could do exactly what you're doing. I could pound on you with all of the attacks I could compose words against you. I could shake my head against you in mockery and disdain. Uh, And he's driving home. That's exactly what you're doing. But he said, also, I also, verse 5, I could, if I were in your place, strengthen you with my mouth. And the solace, that means the help of my lips, could actually lessen your pain. He's actually anticipating here a biblical truth, and that is do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. He says, look, just put yourself in my place for a minute, okay? What would you want to hear? You want to have your pain increased by attack upon attack with no evidence whatsoever? You know, I'll point this out, I think it's next week. They could have talked to Job's neighbors. We'll find out there's a whole bunch of people standing around, a bunch of righteous people. If Job were wicked, just take a poll. 
How many of you have seen Job do this or that against God? Uh, but no, there's no evidence. They simply, he said, I could pound on you. But no, I also could lessen your pain by coming alongside of you as a sympathetic counselor. And so what Job is doing here is he rejects their counsel. He's rejecting their false interpretation of God's providence, isn't he? They have uh, tunnel vision. Uh, they only can read prov- evil or we say frowning or dark providences in terms of the person against whom they come being evil and wicked. And Job has to reject that. That's why time and again, he will, as he will do later in this chapter, he rejects the accusation. He, um, he says, I am not a sinner. He doesn't mean he's sinless. But what he means is that he's, he keeps clear accounts with God. He, God has said of Job that he's a blameless, that he's walking with sincerity, righteously by the law of God. He's a God-fearer. And he doesn't follow sin. He turns away from sin. And so he has, he has to assert that. And for his own sake, you see. Because after a while, you can begin to believe the evil that people say about you as well, can't you? Perhaps you've known people in those relationships where uh, the wife or the husband kept pounding on the other ones. And, and they started actually believing all the negative things about themselves that they were being pounded with. That's part of this temptation. But Job, by God's grace rejects the false interpretation of frowning and dark providences. And you must be willing to do that, as I've just said. You must not listen to Satan. Now, you examine your life. As I've mentioned, if there are things in your life that um, would parallel what's happened to your life, sins then that are being exposed, you repent of those sins. But as you do that honestly and sincerely and you don't see that there are things there, well, well, maybe it was... Things I did 15, 20, 30 years ago. God doesn't do that, you see. You might live with the consequences of sin, but God's not going to heap upon you. If you've confessed your sins in Christ, he's not going to heap upon you uh, new demonstrations of wrath and anger. It's Satan who tells you that God is angry with you, punishing you for things that you did years and years ago. Rest, that's why... Public confession of sin with the assurance of pardon is so important in public worship. Rest in that declaration of sin being pardoned. So Job rejects false interpretation, as you must do, of frowning providences. And so next he affirms then the sovereignty of God in frowning providences. Now we'll see he does so uh, with some misunderstanding of God's motives. But he understands absolutely that God's at work. I think I've shared maybe with you already of early on in the life of the seminary, there was a tragic accident in the family. I think it was a missionary even home on furlough. And he and all of his children, his wife, were killed by a car going across the interstate and hitting them head on. At the funeral service, the words were stated, God did not mean for that to happen. Well, so we've got two options here. You've got the, the wrong interpretation of Job's friends, but you've also got much of what the world, even the church, is saying today. That the, these bad things, God doesn't mean for them to happen. No, not only is he not heaping upon you, uh, God simply uh, allowed that to happen, and it was not his plan. Job doesn't buy that, you see. So what we see in the, the largest part of this chapter, as we look through uh, 
verses 7 uh, through 16 is Job affirms the sovereignty of God in the frowning providences. It begins with a preface in verse 6. If I speak, my pain is not lessened. You know, he has said that already. Uh, If I hold back, what has left me? He he says he's kind of between a rock and a hard place. If he speaks, it doesn't seem that God's listening, and, and the friends are only insulting him for the things he said, even though he's admitted that he said some things wrongly. Um, But uh, his speaking, even in his crying out, his pain's not been lessened. His words have not helped him in that regard. But if I don't speak, then what's left to me? In other words, he's burning within. David would write this in Psalm 39, 2 and 3. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. That's what Job is saying. If I speak, I have pain. If I don't speak, the fire but burns within me. Uh, There's been no respite. And so Job's going to speak. He's not going to speak, though, to his friends. He's going to speak, in a sense, to God in the presence of God, we could say. Because you'll notice in verse 7, he begins first with God in the third person, but now he has exhausted me. But then he says, you, he addresses God personally. So he's going to speak now, but he's going to speak to God in the presence of God. So he states his difficulty in verses 7 and 8. He declares now the sovereignty of God. He has exhausted me. He says, God has worn me out. But God, I'm not just speaking impersonally. You have laid waste to my company. Now, the word company is the word used right above uh, by uh, Eliphaz in verse 34. The company of the godless one is barren. It refers to his household, you see. So what Job is referring to in verse 7 is that the destruction of the Chaldeans and the Sabians and the natural calamities that all these things destroyed Job's household, wasted him and exhausted him. Who was behind them, according to Job? God. He said, you exhausted me. You are the one that laid waste to my household, my estate, God. You are the one that wiped it out. That's his first confession about those losses of of his household. Now in verse 8, he confesses about his illness. You have shriveled me up. It, his emaciated and shriveled condition, has become a witness, his leanness, which he'll later talk about just being a a, a bag of bones, flesh and bones, as an emaciated person has been in a concentration camp, all you can see is the bones of their body. My leanness rises up against me, it testifies to my face. So he said, not only was God behind what we would call these second causes, You know, the Sabians and Chaldeans were wicked, evil people. There were these natural calamities of uh, lightning strikes and and tornado-type winds. God was behind those, but he's also directly behind this illness that Job has. God has shriveled him into nothing, and the illness testifies to him that it's God who has done it. God has risen up against him in this frowning providence of a wasted estate and a wasted body. 
So he gets to the intensity of his suffering in verse 9. His anger has torn me. The idea of a lion chewing prey. He's hunted me down. Literally, he has borne a grudge against me. He's gnashed at me with his teeth. The summary is, my adversary glares at me. You see what he's saying in verse 9? Now, he'll be a rebuke for this, but he's saying God is his enemy. See, these are all words of enmity. Uh, God, in anger, has torn him. God, in anger, has borne a grudge against him. Uh, this phrase, gnashing of teeth, is only used in the Bible of those who hate another. So, for example, in Psalm 35, 16, or Lamentations 2, 16, never used of God is a response to his children. So, it all comes crashing down. Job says, God has become his enemy. And then men have become his enemies under God's tutelage. In verse 10, they, now he's, it's not just his friends probably, it's a group of those who stand behind the friends, have gaped at me with their mouth. They've slapped me on the cheek with contempt. They've masked themselves against me. So God has given him over now to wicked men, his contemporaries, who are mocking him in his trial. So God comes against him as an enemy. God then allows these uh, neighbors and friends and counselors to come against him. And in verses 10 uh, through 14, uh, uh, he emphasizes now what God is doing. He says, God hands me over to ruffians. God tosses me into the hand of the wicked. The general statement in verse 12, I was at ease, but he shattered me. I was at ease. And Job will pick back up on this in chapter 29, exactly uh, in terms of the experience of what uh, what was going on uh, in his life? Uh, Job again took up his discourse said, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by its light I walked through darkness. I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, and my children were around me. My steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured forth for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves. The old men stood and rose. The princes stopped talking, put their hands on their mouths, and, and so forth. That, that's what he means when he says that uh, I was at ease. The prime of life, enjoying God's friendship, a great blessing to his community. That was his status when he shattered me. God shattered him. How did God shatter him? Well, he uh, uses three figures. Like a giant, God grabbed him by the back of the neck and shook him to pieces. Perhaps you've picked up a cat by the back of the net, and maybe you were very angry and you shook that cat. Well, this God's a giant. and Maybe you've seen the, I don't know, I don't see those things, the superheroes and stuff, but a giant picking someone up by the back of his neck and shaking him. That's what he said God was doing. That's the first figure. Second figure, he's become God's target for target practice or for killing. 
Uh, in the end of verse 12, he set me up as his target. So you can picture the, the target for the arrows. His arrows surround me. They're coming one after another, more rapid than uh, uh, elves. Without mercy, he spits my, spills my gall on the ground. And so the arrows come and they pierce the body. And his life juices are flowing out. He's dying. God's shaking him. God's killing him with, with his arrows. And then he changes one more figure. Um, that he is like a besieged city. God breaks through. Breach after breach. Gate after gate. Wall after wall. God runs on him like a mighty warrior. So by these three figures, he is expressing now exactly what he feels in these frowning providences that God has become his enemy. Now mind you, as we've already said, Job is way over speaking himself. He understood sovereignty, but he didn't understand that God is a friend to his people and that God is merciful And God would never treat one of his children with the motives which Job describes. Now, the actuality of Job's pain is clearly expressed here. But what he fails to understand, and he will be corrected, he himself grows, but he'll be corrected by Elihu and God, is that God never acts this way against his children. You need to understand that. God never acts in this way antagonistic, hateful anger. A guy can become angry with you in your sin as a parent becomes angry with a child. But God is not our enemy. But notice now that even though Job says that God's come at him as an enemy, what's his response here as he affirms the sovereignty of God? He submits He submits. So look now at verses 15 and 16. I've sewed sackcloth over my skin. I've thrust my horn in the dust. My face is flushed with weeping. And deep darkness is on my eyelids. He's back on the ash heap. And even though he's misreading the motives of God, he recognizes the sovereignty of God. And he's doing exactly what he did under the first great trials. He submits to God. He doesn't curse God. He doesn't deny God. He, in all of this, honors God by humbling himself. So, whether it's figurative or literal, over his pain-ridden body, he has put sackcloth, which in his day and throughout the Bible was a sign of repentance and sorrow and humiliation. So he clothed himself with marks of humiliation. Uh, The horn, which is the the sign of dignity, he thrust it into the ash heap itself. And he wept. He wept before God. He wept until his face was red and deep darkness on his eyelids. He wept to get a weep no longer. His visage was marred by weeping. But he submitted He submitted. And there he's teaching us that we affirm the sovereignty of God. And we say that my God does what is right. Whatever my God ordains, I don't know why. The providence is dark and foreboding. And it is uh, the frown of God in my life. But 
I bow before him. I put my hand over my mouth. It is the Lord. Let him do what's right in his sight. That is Job's affirmation. So although he doesn't overstate God's sovereignty, he overstates God's motives. But isn't it wonderful that even thinking that God's coming at him like an enemy, he doesn't harden himself. You might think at times God's come at you as an enemy. And you at that point might bristle or harden yourself. But he humbles himself. And now we come to a most wonderful climax. I've already mentioned to you, through the book, we see this trajectory. Uh, And this is good for you, because through his trials, Job is getting clearer and clearer insights. And now, in the third point, having seen him reject uh, wrong interpretations of frowning providences and affirm the sovereignty of God in those promises, he now trusts in the grace of God. It's a remarkable, remarkable statement. 17 through 22. He begins once again by affirming his uh, innocence with respect to the accusations. In verses 17 and 18, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. You remember that Eliphaz had said in this opening second speech in verse 4, Chapter 15, you do away with reverence, you hinder meditation before God. You know that they're saying that um, you're, you're sinning, and he's saying, no, there's no violence in my hands. I don't know where you're getting this, but I have done no wickedness. And my prayer is pure. That's an important principle. They said that he hindered prayer and meditation, but the scripture says... Um, that he who regards iniquity in his heart, his prayer is an abomination the Lord will not hear. Uh, but Job knew his prayer wasn't, wasn't an abomination. At this point, he wasn't, didn't think God heard him, but it wasn't because of sin. And then he affirms this even more, that if I've acted violently, let the bloodshed either symbolically or physically uh, demand my condemnation. O earth, do not cover my blood, verse 18, and let there be no resting place for my cry. You hear here uh, the words of God to Cain in Genesis 4.10. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And Job is saying, if I have done violence, whether it is, happens figuratively or literally, let the blood of the one whom I have uh, mistreated or dealt with violently rise up and demand my punishment. And then, let there be no resting place for my cry. There will be no one to hear his prayer, he says. He can say this once again because he's maintained a pure conscience. He confesses his sin and he deals with it. Now look at this. Look at this in verse 20. His friends are his scoffers. But he weeps to God. Once again, you see, he's... Ignoring them, so to speak. He's bypassing them. Their words are useless. He weeps to God. And notice now his plea. It's profound. We've already seen back in chapter 9 that he, he mourned. There's, there's no umpire, no mediator between God and me who can lay his hand on us both. He was longing for this mediator. That lays the foundation for step 2, which we have here. 
Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. And the ESV translates this, I think, much better, that he would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. Who is this he? This he is a mediator. This he is the one who stands between Job and us and God. The he is the intercessor. The he is the witness. This word uh, witness, the first word that's used is one who comes in and establishes truth and sets right uh, wrong things. Um, And one writer says what we have here is the dual personality of God. Uh, Many of the old writers saw this, that in some way this is God pleading with God. Even as as a man, and son of man is used here. uh, I've I've wrestled back and forth, but this is only used twice in Job. It's used a great bit in Ezekiel, just simply mean a human person. But in Daniel, it's used for the mediator. It's possible here. The Spirit led the choice of this word simply to intimate that this one, this man, who can plead with his neighbor is the Son of Man pleading with his equal, our Savior, pleading with God. You see where he's come. As he will affirm God's sovereignty, he comes now to see the hope. So he concludes, when a few years are past, I shall go the way of no return. There's no respite here. He says, I'm on the long road to the long home. And I'm looking now to that. What a glorious statement. But mind you, as I think he's by the Spirit talking here in in shadows, and we'll see more in chapter 19, about the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Um, Why is Christ such a fit mediator? Not just because he's the God-man. Because Christ actually was the only one Whom God exhausted. Whom God shriveled up. And his leanness witnessed against him. Who was torn by the anger of God. Hunted down by the anger of God. God gnashed his teeth at him. God glared at him as he hanged on Calvary's cross. Those around gaped the mouth at him and mocked him. And God handed him over to ruffians, to Satan himself. Tossed him. He shattered. He was the target of God's arrows and God's... Righteous army ran upon him, wave after wave after wave. The only truly righteous person became the enemy, or God became his enemy. That God might become our friend. Because Christ now can stand between God and us, having truly satisfied the anger of God against sinners who rest in him, and can then represent us to God. And so the Spirit shows us here that in the midst of trial and temptation, we need to um, meditate on the sovereign providence and grace of God. In the midst of frowning providences, meditate on the sovereign providence and grace of God. So we must reject all false interpretations of providence. We must affirm, regardless, regardless Of the iniquity and evil that's been done against us, we must affirm the sovereignty of God in it, but we must rest in the grace of God 
He will not come against you as an enemy. So as you are today walking in the valley of the shadow of death, or as many of us, perhaps even this year, and surely in our years together, will walk in the valley of the shadow of death, how are you to think? How are you to meditate? Well, let me give you four things. In the first place, affirm with Job the absolute sovereignty of God and what has happened. As Paul could do in Philippians chapter 1, it was painful to him. He couldn't preach publicly. Some did that then to make him even more unhappy, but he could rejoice in the sovereignty of God. And you must. Don't ever lose sight of that. Yes, there'll be second causes. Uh, There'll be cancer germs and there'll be wicked and evil people and wicked government and everything else. But behind it all, behind it all, my dear friends, you must assert the sovereignty of our God. For God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now he's wise and loving in doing so. Second thing on which to meditate as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, is you must always interpret general revelation, which includes providence, through the eyeglasses of Scripture. Calvin says that twice early in the Institutes, that we must interpret general revelation with the spectacles of Scripture. And particularly the dark providences then. Because if you look at them through the eyes of the world, as uh, Job's friends were doing, through your own fears and... uh, uh, trepidations uh, through philosophies of the world that are around you, you'll reach wrong conclusions. Now, providence, God does use providence to help us make decisions um, and direct course, but never a frowning providence. See, that's the difference. You do not make decisions in the face of frowning providence. You look to Scripture. Many of you know who William Tyndale was. He was the the person who translated scripture into English and was put to death for doing that. Well, he had just finished translating uh, the first five books of the Bible into English from Hebrew. Now, if you read a Bible reading plan, you know, it takes you about half a year to even to read in English those first five books. He translated them into Hebrew. They were at the printer and he got word because they were always after him. There's this great little book called God's Outlaw. They were after him. He runs to the print shop. They've just finished. He has the proofs. He gets up the proofs. He gets on the ship, and he gets away safely. And the ship wrecks. And he lost all of it. Now, how does he interpret that? Well, I guess God doesn't want me to translate the Bible into English. He just destroyed my work. No, he knew the mandate of God. The Bible must be in the language of all of God's people. So he goes back and does it over. You don't interpret life. You don't make life decisions on the basis of dark providences. You do so on the basis of Scripture. So you affirm God's sovereignty. You don't make decisions on the basis of frowning providence. Third, keep that conscience clear. Okay? Keep the conscience clear. You do that by examining yourself regularly by Scripture, confessing your sins to God and to one another, hiding over no sin. So that you can say with Job and with Paul and other greats in the scripture that uh, your conscience is clear before God and before men. That clear conscience will be such a help to you 
when you are attacked by those around you and by the devil. (laughs) And then fourthly, rest in Christ, okay? Look to him. You know, it's remarkable, this description of Job that we can apply to Christ. This morning I, I saw online a picture of a dear friend of mine who will die in the next few weeks. Um, emaciated. And my heart reached a new level of, of uh, sympathy and, and grief from that picture. And God doesn't give us pictures of the Savior. Well, he does, doesn't he? Two verbal pictures like this. If you can read Job's pain as he's ripped apart, and you can see that is exactly what my Savior suffered. And look at that in terms of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And ask the Spirit to give you this kindred feeling of the Savior. And as we prepare to come to the Lord's table now, next Lord's Day, to set forth Christ's death, meditate on what Job says here in chapter 16. Understand, that's exactly what God did to your Savior so that you could be saved from your sins. Look to Christ. Rest in Christ. But one more word. Although God would never do these things to a child, this is a pale description of what's going to happen to unbelievers in hell. This morning, if you're not a Christian, I want you to read these words from uh, chapter, uh, verse 7 through verse 14. Because they're a very pale description. When God becomes your enemy in the eternal destruction of hell. You would wish. You would wish that this was all that was happening. Uh, That would be great. But no. Behind all of this is the awful burning wrath of God. And the gnawing conscience. Of every gospel invitation you ever heard. Every prayer for you that was, was ever made. Oh dear friend. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're in a very unsafe place. But I'm offering you a haven. And that is, if you repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you become the friend of God. He pardons your sins. He constitutes you legally righteous. He brings you into his family. He indwells you by his Holy Spirit. And you will never again ever fear that God will do these things to you. So flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for what you did in Job's life and how through Job you teach us about yourself and our responses, Lord. And we pray that you'll give us grace to reject all wrong interpretations of of frowning providences, to assert your sovereignty, Lord, in those providences. And above all, to rejoice in a Savior who is our mediator and has saved us, Lord, from wrath and anger. Bless your people. Comfort them, Lord, in their walk. And if there are those here today, in our children or others, who are not yet converted, that your Spirit, even now, would call them into union with the glorious Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.